0: Last week, a dense legal filing from California went public. And for a certain kind of Washington legal reporter, it made a splash.
1: So this is the breaking news I was telling you about at the top of the show. The January 6th Select Committee says that they believe that the former president, Donald Trump, and a right-wing lawyer were part of a criminal conspiracy to overturn the 2020 presidential election. This
0: filing was not an indictment or a criminal charge. It wasn't even really about Donald Trump, but you might not have caught that if you were scanning cable news.
1: They signal in this filing, Don, that they may
0: be willing to make a criminal referral to the Justice Department against former President Trump and others, depending on what they find in the rest of this investigation. One of the biggest headlines out of this committee so far. And the House is really laying it all out here. They are saying that they believe that there was some sort of planning of a crime happening between Trump. What it is is a roadmap for DOJ, if DOJ cares to take this up, which they ought to. Uh, I asked Ankush Kardori, a journalist who used to try cases over at the DOJ, if he could translate this filing for me.
1: Sorry, I actually do have a copy of this brief on my computer that I'm just pulling up with highlighting.
0: I wanted him to hone in on the most damning portion of the document. Okay, are you ready? What page are you on?
1: (laughs) Uh, I'm on page 39 of the brief, um, where the committee says that Evidence and information available to the committee establishes a good-faith belief that Mr. Trump and others may have engaged in criminal and or fraudulent acts.
0: What you just read to me is pretty wonky. Why do you think it jumped out at so many people?
1: You know, you kind of have the word Trump and criminal in the same sentence in an official government filing from, you know, the committee that is tasked with investigating this conduct. And, you know, this wasn't something that they had done lightly.
0: I mean, the way that one newspaper put it was the January 6th committee has gift wrapped Donald Trump for Merrick Garland. Because the idea here is that the January 6th committee would hand the Department of Justice charges, potentially.
1: Yeah, so that's definitely not true. I think the clock is like, been running and I think it's almost run out on any real ability for the department to conduct like a concerted investigation into Trump himself's conduct, particularly if he announces his candidacy. Because
0: that'll protect him in some way?
1: Yeah, it shouldn't, right? Um, But I think it will, particularly with this administration. Because it'll look
0: like a political investigation.
1: Correct. Mm.
0: Today on the show, The January 6th committee is saying they suspect the 45th president of the United States of fraud. We'll talk about how they pieced it together and why, in the end, that assertion might not make much of a difference. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. So I wonder if we can start with the January 6th committee itself. Over a year later, I think a lot of people would be forgiven for forgetting exactly what the January 6th committee is up to. Can you refresh our memory?
1: So the January 6th committee is a special committee that was impaneled by Nancy Pelosi to investigate the attack on the Capitol.
0: Is it just like a fact-finding mission?
1: It is supposed to uh, be both fact finding and to inform legislative conduct, meaning potential lawmaking, which could include, you know, security around the Capitol, right? Something as simple as appropriations. But what they've been doing for the for the better part of a year, and you may recall there was a lot of delay because the Republicans did not want this committee to come into existence, has been interviewing hundreds of people behind closed doors, gathering lots and lots of documents and reviewing those mostly out of public view. And for the most part, we haven't had a whole lot of visibility into the information that the committee itself has been gathering.
0: That changed last week because of this filing. It's part of a civil case from one of the committee's key witnesses, a lawyer named John Eastman. He's trying to avoid sharing documents with the House investigators. He says their work is highly partisan. The investigators' counterargument is that Eastman's documents may reveal fraud and other crimes on the part of both Donald Trump and Eastman himself. Can you tell me a little bit about who Eastman is and why he's become a central character here?
1: Eastman is a uh, law professor, a longstanding member of the Federalist Society, and claims, and, and this is disputed now, but claims that he was representing Donald Trump in connection with his Challenge to the certification.
0: Representing him, how? Like, was he was he in court, or was he just consigliary?
1: Consigli more consigliary. I don't recall him being on any in any of the court cases. But his principal role, the the role that has attracted all of this attention and, and controversy, is as a behind the scenes advisor to Trump and as someone who was pressuring Pence and Pence's own lawyers to try to disregard the electoral votes and aggressively offering a very aggressive legal theory, claiming that Pence could simply reject some of the slates of electors where there had been sort of frivolous claims of fraud that had tainted the the outcome in certain states.
0: The committee turned their attention to Eastman because of a six-page memo he circulated. It suggested that Vice President Pence could stop the 2020 election vote certification. Congressional lawyers argue Eastman and Trump must have known this idea was outrageous. They attached testimony from a senior campaign advisor to Trump, who explains a data expert had come to the White House to break the news that Trump was going to lose. Essentially, the committee saying that people in the White House, they should have known better.
1: And that's actually among the uh, sort of handful of facts that I think are new and legitimately significant. And one that, again, I think the committee... Um, sort of selectively introduced and that they may have more of. But yes, that is one significant fact that we learned from this filing.
0: But it sounds like John Eastman, he disagreed with that and found ways to (laughs) help the White House try to work around that.
1: Well, the big question, you know, about Eastman, just as, you know, the question around Trump is like, what did these people really believe? And were those beliefs kind of justified? And part of what this brief does well is to lay out many data points in favor of the theory that the, they could not have believed that there was really fraud tainting the election results because they were being told by, you know, ahead of the election that they were gonna lose. They were being told by people like Bill Barr, by the head of, you know, the election um, security folks within, within the administration, that there was not widespread fraud. They were being told sort of again and again and again that their theories of fraud, much less widespread, you know outcome of, uh, affecting fraud were baseless. And that's one of the more powerful parts of this brief.
0: It creates a narrative.
1: It it literally provides a narrative, right? I mean, that's what the brief does in in its its factual section. And it's a well-done narrative.
0: One of the other new things that I want you and I to kind of shine some attention on is that there's this back and forth included in this filing, emails back and forth, between John Eastman and one of Mike Pence's lawyers. And it stands out to me because someone who is a lawyer for Mike Pence writing from his White House account knows that his emails are subject to being subpoenaed. (laughs) He knows that he's a government worker. And he's saying things to John Eastman like, it was gravely irresponsible of you to advise the president in this way. He's saying, thanks to your bullshit, we are under siege. And talking about how he's been being moved from place to place, and his wife and three kids are worried about him. That's from someone inside 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue.
1: Yeah, you know, you've actually really seized on the most significant parts because that is the other uh, uh, other collection of facts that I think is really, really significant here. Now, parts of that email back and forth had been uh, available in in the public domain through like press reports, but the whole thing is now available for anyone to see. And I think um, the other part, which is not in the emails, but is a new and very significant fact that is just described from from the same lawyer's testimony to the investigators, is he said that in a conversation, Eastman acknowledged that his legal position would lose before the Supreme Court 9-0. And that is a major, like as a a testimonial fact, major uh, fact, because it's basically a concession that the position he was advancing was at odds with controlling constitutional law. And all the more striking, because at this point in time, we're talking about a court comprised one third of people that his client had appointed, (laughs) that the president had appointed. Um, So a concession like that, uh, you know, look, I'm sure Eastman would contest it or whatever, but this is a new fact, that this is that lawyer's recollection of an exchange with Eastman. And he is saying that Eastman acknowledged in real time that the legal theory he was advancing was Untenable.
0: Talking to you, I wonder a little bit whether someone like John Eastman is being set up to take the fall. Like, I look at the emails from Mike Pence's lawyer. They're essentially insinuating that Eastman pushed something and put it in Trump's head. And looking at that, I just wonder if, if what's happening here is you're creating someone who would then be the bad guy and <laughs> the one who is taken down by this. But it doesn't go to Trump.
1: I think you're right uh, about kind of the potential for Eastman uh, to be sort of a fall guy here. And actually, there's actually one kind of interesting aspect of this filing that I, that I th- don't think got a lot of attention, which is part of this brief is about whether or not Eastman and Trump even had an attorney-client relationship. And the committee has said, look, it looks like there was an engagement letter, but it was never signed by Trump. So, the, so a common method of memorializing an attorney-client relationship is an engagement letter in which, you know, the attorney and the client say, look, you know, I'm your lawyer and I'm your client. That is not dispositive. You can have an attorney-client relationship without such a letter. But the way to plug that hole as a factual matter would be for Eastman simply to put in a declaration from Trump saying Eastman was my lawyer and he's not done that. And I suspect that's because Trump does not want to give him that declaration.
0: And that would really set him up.
1: Well, it allows Trump to be able to say, look, I don't, this guy was around. I was hearing some, some of it, not all of it. You know, he's not my lawyer. (laughs) Like, I don't know what he was doing, but you know, whatever he was doing with Pence's lawyer and whatever ridiculous things he was saying, he was not my agent. So I, I, I think there's a, we're very plausibly heading toward a scenario in which, You know, whether it's in a criminal case or just a political setting, in the political landscape, Trump is trying to make Eastman his fallback.
0: We'll be back after a break.
1: Today in the Middle East, happens in Ukraine has consequences for what's happening around AI.
0: Hello, listeners. I'm Gabrielle Sierra host of the Why It Matters podcast from the Council on Foreign Relations. Look, the world of international affairs can feel overwhelming and complex, but it also shapes our lives every single day. So it pays to know what's going on out there. Why It Matters is a foreign policy podcast for the rest of us. And with a little bit of humor and a lot of questions, we're here to break down global topics and bring the world home to you. So join us every two weeks on Why It Matters, wherever you listen. In the latest season of Blind Spot from WNYC Studios and the History Channel, join host Kai Wright as he travels back to a pivotal moment in the history of this country. Decades before COVID-19, a virus tore through some of our most vulnerable communities while the wider world looked away. Throughout the season, you'll meet people who demanded that they and their illness be seen. Mothers, children, doctors, nurses, nuns, and sex workers. All leading to a woman who literally helped change the definition of AIDS. Blindspot. The Plague in the Shadows. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so we've just talked a lot about a bunch of characters within the White House. Leading up to January 6th, I'm wondering if you can lay out really explicitly how this filing makes the case against Trump himself. Like, What are the potential charges and how are they supported by the evidence in this filing?
1: So the potential criminal charges that are identified in this filing are two. One is uh, obstruction of an official proceeding, and that's a reference to the proceeding, congressional proceeding on January 6th. The second criminal theory charge that they've laid out is uh, a conspiracy to impair government functions. The um, argument is that um, Trump, Eastman, and potentially others uh, sought to obstruct Congress by advancing a factually and legally baseless theory for rejecting the results of the electoral certifications. Now, the factual basis is essentially the many warnings and refutations that they got about their claims of electoral fraud, as well as the baselessness of the legal theory that they were using.
0: So you should have known better.
1: Well, it has to be better than you should have known better. Right. Because under criminal law, like should have known is not Uh, 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 generally speaking, not sufficient to hold someone criminally liable. But you did know better? That is what they're arguing, right? That there's evidence that they knew better. And what they're they're doing is they're advancing circumstantial evidence to argue that, in fact, right, they did not believe these things, that they did not believe that the legal theory was uh, a legitimate legal theory, that they did not believe that their factual claims about election fraud were actually justified. And that's not an uncommon um, approach to establishing criminal intent, particularly in a fraud case, right? You may not have an admission from the, the defendant or the target of an investigation in real time that they didn't believe something. Instead, what you do is you establish that they've said something and then you would mass evidence indicating that they knew that that something was not true. Right, and that's circumstantial, and circumstantial evidence is perfectly fine evidence in a, in our legal system. Um, circumstantial evidence that what they were saying they knew was false.
0: I don't want to get out over my skis, but what kind of penalties do charges like this entail?
1: We have no idea, right? Because <laughs> we've never seen a case like this. Like the fifteen twelve charge, I think has a twenty year statutory maximum. The um, the the second theory that 371, which is Section 371 under the Criminal Code, I think has a five-year statutory maximum. But uh, you know the the sentencing in a criminal case is supposed to be fact specific, and we don't have any references here, right? There's no precedent for for saying like the, the an, a close advisor of the president, potentially even the president himself, may have committed a crime by trying to prevent the lawful transfer of po- power. Now. You said, I think, fairly, you know, you don't want to get out of your skis. We're a long way from having, having to worry about that. My guess is we'll never have to worry about that because I just don't see this Justice Department ever winding up there, or, or I view as very improbable that they do, if not impossible, very improbable.
0: If you're wondering how the Department of Justice would avoid charging Trump after seeing a filing like this one, Ankush says it's pretty simple, the evidence we know about so far. It doesn't actually meet the standard for a successful criminal case. Instead, the filing basically says... We've got a theory here, and if we got our hands on John Eastman's documents, we just might be able to prove it. But proving it is just the first step, because congressional investigators can't actually charge anyone for a crime. Merrick Garland's Department of Justice would need to do that, and that would mean kicking up a political dust storm. Some people claim Garland may already be investigating Trump behind the scenes, but Uncush is not buying it.
1: The public indications uh, don't provide any reason to believe that that has happened. We haven't gotten leaks. We haven't gotten word of grand jury subpoenas, which witnesses are free to talk about if they like. Um, and you know, Trump and his inner, inner circle, in the case of like the Mueller investigation, they were very um, talkative in the media, and they actually used the media to their benefit as a way to kind of defend themselves against um, uh, uh, against the Mueller investigation. So many people say, "Look, we're not seeing any of this activity." And that suggests that kind of the investigation that we believe is warranted uh, a, you know, correct, uh, excuse me, a concerted uh, investigation focused on Trump and his inner circle um, is not being conducted. There's another school of thought, which is people who argue, including some former federal prosecutors, or though for the life of me, I don't know why they say this, who say, um, The only way, you know, the traditional way that the government, uh, the Justice Department investigates a large criminal act is they start from the bottom. They start from the bottom and they work their way up. And that what they're doing with the January 6th uh, uh, criminal investigation is they're starting with the rioters and they're kind of trying to flip their way up. And, you know, they're getting pleas and they're getting cooperators and, you know, they're getting closer and closer to Trump.
0: That doesn't sound like a bad approach. If you don't consider any of the other sort of restrictions that are about to be in place where there's going to be another presidential election, there's going to be a midterm election. So your window of opportunity is maybe narrowing.
1: That is a major practical problem with that approach. The other problem is uh, a logical one, which is that is these two are not mutually exclusive approaches. Right. You can do both of these things. Right. And that is not unusual in large criminal investigations. And the idea that um, you can't have investigations concerning like overlapping criminal conspiracies is totally wrong. It is completely wrong that the, the, uh, in large criminal cases, the government simply works its way up from the bottom. That depends on what the evidence is. And in this particular kind of fact pattern here, that is pretty meaningful evidence to support the opening of a criminal investigation.
0: I've read some commentators who who say that Garland could be afraid of losing. That might be part of what's at stake here, because a loss would severely undermine the department's credibility, make it harder for the federal courts to hold future presidents accountable. What do you say to someone who's worried about that?
1: I think they're absolutely right to worry about that, but we're so far from that consideration. I mean what what we should be talking about is whether an investigation should be underway right? Before we get to anyone gets to worrying about whether or not the investigation has enough evidence to support criminal charges and whether whether they that that the government would win or lose at a trial that is unknowable until until the investigation actually runs its course. And it's very possible that people some people commentators or, or people in the Justice Department are kind of prejudging this in that way. And kind of saying, Well, look, so far as we know, it's not a strong case, whatever. I think that's unwise and on matters of this Uh, level of and scale of national significance to be thinking about it in that way you know in any criminal investigation you know what i sort of learned when i was doing is you just got to take it one step at a time right at the end of the day maybe at the end of the day like your investigation doesn't yield sufficient evidence to support a criminal charge that happens all day every day investigations that don't result in criminal charges that would not be the end of the
0: world and you just keep it pushing
1: yeah you close the investigation and you keep it moving think the most likely thing that is happening, which, you know, I, I base just based on public indicators, is that the Justice Department is conducting a bottom, you know, a, an investigate, criminal investigation working its way up from the rioters that, you know, may or may not end up um, getting close to Trump. It is not an investigative structure that is well designed to get close to Trump. And I think it's unwise. I think it's extremely unwise, actually. Um, and I think it has poses real long-term risks to our democracy and our constitutional order. And like, we have this gerontocracy problem in this country and a lot of the dangers that I'm worried about, which is, okay, what is this precedent? How does it incentivize further misconduct in the future in presidential administrations, right? But, you know, if it's 10 or 20 years from now, when we really incur, you know, the real um, downside of what I think is this overly cautious approach, I mean, these people aren't going to be around, they're not gonna be in power. Some of them may not be with us any longer. And I think, you know, for people who are operating under sort of different horizons, like it just bothers me, right? Because what I've seen a lot of just sort of time and again is this kind of short-termism in the thinking of the Justice Department where, you know, they're doing what seems to be politically wise and expedient to them in the near term, but the long-term effects may not be visible until the long term. And that's a really easy trade-off to make when you're the one in power because you're not gonna be in power forever. And it's a less appealing one (laughs) to those of us who are trying to think along a longer horizon.
0: Ankush, I'm really grateful for you translating these documents for me.
1: Uh, thank you for having me, and uh, thank you for entertaining my <laughs> digressions and occasional broadsides. <laughs> I appreciate it.
0: Ankush Kardori is a former federal prosecutor. He's now a contributing writer for Intelligencer and a contributing editor at Politico. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Daniel Hewitt, Mary Wilson, and Carmel Delshad. We are getting a ton of help right now from Laura Spencer and Anna Rubinova. We are led by Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter and say hi. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow.
1: I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the US Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape the many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS, we are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen.